You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Shaquine Brown. Shaquine is a creative activist and program strategist. The oldest of nine children, Shaquine entered Christopher Newport University with a passion for the performing arts, but she eventually tapped into her interest in neuroscience and interned at a lab. She would soon learn that this wasn't the right environment for her and decided to make a change. It would not be the last time that Shaquine saw the writing on the wall and opted to pivot in her academic and professional journey. She would go on to earn a master's degree in social policy from Columbia University. And after serving as a reentry coordinator for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Shaquine started the next phase of her career within the research and policy space. But like many 26ers, Shaquine is always looking ahead and she aims to one day marry her creative passions with her work. But no matter where her path takes her, she remains focused on the advancement of the Black community. So without further ado, here's her story. Please enjoy. Shaquine, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Looking forward uh, to speaking with you on this fine Sunday. Before we, you know, we got on, we were talking about just the the joys of like the technological difficulties of COVID and how we've been doing this virtually and everybody's dealing with sound issues and things going on at home, but we are still trying to make the best of it. So I'm um, really excited to have this conversation with you. No, I'm, I'm excited too, especially on a Sunday, um, you know, Sunday vibes, but I was really happy to know that I was going to be able to talk with you. So. Absolutely. So let's get into it. Who is Shaquine Brown? Yeah, well, I'm first generation. Um, Both my parents were born outside of the U.S. So I have roots in Central America and Jamaica. I'm an older sister. Um, I talk about that a lot. So I'm the oldest of nine and um, that's really important to me. I also am a traveler. I love to travel. So I'm the person who have a bunch of lists of countries I want to go to, watch YouTube, um, make additional lists for that. And so I'm really into just immersing myself in other cultures as well. Um, and I also, before my career journey, used to do a lot more performing and creative things. And so I also like to hold that close to to myself in terms of being I'm a creator and bringing people together and community builder. And that's one thing I, I really um, strive to do more of, I think. Um, and right now for me, it's really important that I central my own peace and happiness. And so that's what I focus on and not being so obsessed with outcomes. I'm definitely a type A person. So I have a plan and then I have a backup plan. <laughs> so I'm really just trying to relax though. And which we, we talk about that often on the show is really our demographic at 226ers are. Um, we plan everything. We have contingencies. You know, we're, we're sort of managing or trying to control every aspect. And that's just how life works often. And we're seeing that more and more this year, especially. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that uh, for sure. But going back to upbringing, you know, our parents' generation, you, you hear a lot about, I had, you know, eight siblings, you know, I'm the oldest of nine, 10, what have you. You don't hear that as often um, with us on the uh, under 40, right? So tell me about that. What was that like growing up with, with that many siblings, especially yeah, as the yeah. oldest? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Um, it's funny because while I have a total of nine siblings, I only grew up with five. Okay. And so I was raised with my mom and my five brothers. Um, we spent I spent half my childhood in Florida, in Jacksonville, Florida, and then the other half in Virginia, um, in Richmond, Virginia Beach, and Norfolk. But we moved around quite a bit um, as a as a kid, from what I remember. Um, and then growing up in the household, not only with five siblings, but with five brothers, is definitely different. 
Like, so, you know, being the only girl in the house and then me and my mom are pretty close. Um, I never really, I guess I never really thought about it until I got older with how many, how having so many siblings really impacted my life and how I see things and working with groups and liking to be around a lot of people. Um, but it was, it was good. We all shared chores. I had someone to, as the backup. Um, my brothers and I are really close. And so we often do a lot of family things. And my mom comes from a bigger family. So she's one of 12. Um, and so that is not new to me. And I, and for our get togethers, I used to think, oh, this, you know, this is a normal get together size. And so I would bring like other friends around and they'd be like, why is your like regular, just regular day, 20 people plus people in the house. Um, but that's really just always been my whole life and what I've known. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, also your mom was pretty young when she, she had you as well. Right. So in that that environment, you know, I talked to my friends who grew up in single parent homes with parents who were a little bit younger. They always said there was this element of like they felt like they were growing up with the parent as well. Right. You know, they're sort of, cool, sort of coming into themselves, um, obviously in different phases. But did you did you feel the, the gravity of that? Like not only being the oldest, but the oldest with a young mom who's trying to make it, you know, for this many children. Yeah. Um, I think honestly, you know, my mom had me young, but she had my, my grandmother to help mm-hmm. raise me, at least from what I know. So I don't remember these times, but when I was younger, I was born in Brooklyn. Um, and so my grandmother who was here helped my mom pretty much raise me as she was younger. And then as we transitioned through life and kind of ended up in Virginia where I have the most memory between Virginia and Florida of actually living with my mom. That wasn't something that really stood out to me. I think I actually didn't notice that, like, my mom is young and I didn't really sit with me until we would go to, like, parent-teacher conferences or we would go to, um, I used to be a part of the Center for the Arts, which is a program that they have in Richmond. And a lot of my uh, classmates who often were either white or there were a few people of color, their parents were much older. And so when my mom would come around and they're like, ma'am, you <laughs> like did you need something um yeah not to mention my mom's also she's really short she's like five three um and so she's also a smaller stature and so I think I didn't really notice until other people noticed so it wasn't really a feeling for me that I have my mom that's younger she's always really focused on make, making sure that we know what we need to do to propel ourselves and so she's always played that sort of same structure in my life and then because I have so many aunts honestly they're all like mom's part two and so having that variety of different knowledge and different experiences, um, whether that's age or just what they've been through in life has, I really think, helped me and really shaped who I am today. Mm -hmm. I remember like going to, so I went to a really prestigious junior high school, like, you know, private, I'd been in private school before, but it was Christian. It was more diverse. But at this one, it was like predominantly white. And I mean, like when I say predominantly, there were like three of us in the entire school, right? Of color. And I remember like the first event with parents and seeing um, my classmates, like moms and dads, and I'm like, these people are older than my grandparents. Like, um, they were so much older than my mom. And it, I had this, a similar experience where like, this was just normal, right? And then I, I saw these folks who like, whose dads had gray hair already, you know, just way farther in life and not, not to mention the socioeconomic difference between me and them. Um, but that is a very real experience when you see that your friend's parents are just, you know, three chapters ahead <laughs> of, of your mom, yeah. um, for sure. So back then, what was your vision, you know, for your adult life in terms of academics and a professional career? Yeah. Hmm. In high school, I actually thought I was going to be a performer. So because I went to the Center for the Arts, 
um, which again is a program that's in Richmond. And I had found out about it from my guidance counselor. So in my in my mind, I was just going to do the regular, go to school, go to college, get up somewhere working a nine to five and just making good money. Um, and my guidance counselor knew that I had an interest in performing and singing. And so they were like, oh, you should you should try out for the Center for the Arts. And I was like, I never heard of that. I don't even know. I don't know how to read music. I don't have those kind of skill sets. Like, that's not how I grew up. I don't come from money. Is this free? Like, what is, you know, what are these things? Um, my guidance counselor, she was really great, Miss um, Fuse. I remember her telling me, no, you should just, you should apply. You should try out. And I got to um, Henrico's where the program is centered. I got there and I remember the day for tryouts. I was so nervous because, again, I didn't have any sheet music. So I wasn't sure how the interaction was going to go. And when you try out, there are three parts. So you have to actually do a a singing, sing some sort of song, do a dance number, and then also a piece or a monologue. Um, But they provided you, if you didn't bring your stuff, they provided you with it. And I remember walking into the room and there, again, I probably was the only person of color there. Um, And all all the kids had their paper ready. They were practicing. They talked about, you know, how their parents had spent years and years preparing them for this moment. And I had only ever watched Grease. That was the only musical I knew. So, so I was like, this might be a struggle. I don't know, you know, if I'm going to get chosen. Um, and I remember I went, I still went forward, you know, sang the song, did the number, and I got the acceptance letter and I was really excited. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to this program. Um, and from there, I had thought going into college, I would do more performance arts. And so I ended up at a liberal arts school uh, called Christopher Newport University, which is in Newport News, Virginia. And there I started taking different courses um, in science. I was doing a couple of where I could doing different auditions. Um, And I started this journey again of thinking, okay, well, if I don't have this, what's again with the planning, what's my plan B? So my plan B was to actually um, go and study for neuroscience. And so I started taking biology courses. Kim, I know it's, it is not, I'm going to say right now, this whole journey is going to be like a (laughs) It's going to be a whirlwind, but I promise you they all connect into like what I think will come. Um, So, yeah, so people often are surprised when I say that. But yeah, I actually I like learning about the brain. I I failed a couple of times, um, but that's where I met my best friend in one of my classes. um, And I just continued to study. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go to med school. This is what I want to do. Ended up landing an internship in a neuroscience lab. Got there. Completely hated it. No one was there. No one was talking to each other. And I like to socialize. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe this isn't for me. And honestly, back then, I kind of got a little nervous about not knowing what I was going to do because I didn't like the thing that I already studied for. Um, so I started just doing more volunteer work. Um, so I volunteered at this refugee agency that I had heard about from a, that was across the street from my university. Um, and there I got to meet so many great people. I learned about just, just different social service type of jobs. and how you get into that. Um, and so I, again, started on a mission to say like, all right, well, let me envision like, is the United Nations, like, where is this thing that I can go where I can make actual impact? Um, and so that's really, that's where my head was at back then between like high school and college. It went from performer to science to social service. But I think there's a, a very thorough line of like, how I actually see the world. So I try to bring in creativity, no matter what industry I'm in. And that hasn't left me to this day. Mm-hmm. So well, let's go back to the the performance piece. So like, what were you aspiring to be as a performer? Because that can mean many things. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so I, well, two things. I either wanted to go into like Broadway or 
just do general acting. So I had auditioned um, for Colored Girls when they ran the production in my undergrad. And I really enjoyed it. I like reading monologues. And so I was thinking, okay, I'll just aspire to just audition for different pieces, maybe end up on TV, maybe not. Um, so that's really, that's where I had thought I was going to go. Um, and I don't regret, you know, going to that school because I learned things I probably would have never learned before. Like people don't know, I know how to tap dance. Like that, that that's not something you learn at, you know, at, at my house, we don't tap dance. Like, um, so that was a skill that I learned, just different acting skills. Um, and just a lot of people from all over the world and just different backgrounds that I think really pushed me to want to be in spaces where I could continue to meet more people um, that were different than myself. Okay, so talking about more um, of your journey, you, you're on the performing arts path, you go into the, this neuroscience lab, you're interning, you have this volunteer experience, um, which is, is interesting because, I, and you hear this especially, I think, from a lot of um, Black people, right? Or those who are first generation going, we have an interest, like, you know, I had an interest in the law or, you know, I have tons of friends who are like, I had an interest in medicine. But then when we get into the environments, like where we have to work, it's like, this is not me at all, right? Like, even, even though I have a passion for this thing, the way this, you know, this environment is set up is not what I was expecting. And I think, you know, a lot of that, you know, comes from, we are driven to success. Many of us are like first generation college, you know, we're driven to like, try to be the best of the best in these areas. Um, we kind of try to find the thing that's we're passionate about, but also <laughs> that could be lucrative, you know, financially, um, and, and go in that direction when actually, um, that's not what we were necessarily meant to do, right? In that in that format, and I think we some of us, not all, but some of us have a predisposition with security, right? So it's like, all right, I am a creative, I am passionate about this, but I'm going to try to figure out the safe route to make sure that I can be financially secure. So eventually, you end up getting a master's degree, right? So right. how how did that come about? Yes. No. Wait. Well, going back to what you said about financial stabilities, um, especially during that time, I think. You know, I started working at 16. I was working at Taco Bell and I've always had a job, like for as long as I can remember. And it would be very odd jobs, candy world jobs, just any job that paid money. I was there. Um, and I was if I had, if I had to work two, three of them, I didn't care. That was just like a thing I would do to make sure that I could get to where I need to get to. Um, and so right around the time that I was about to graduate from undergrad, again, I remember just being like, OK, so either I have a couple of options. My dream option would have actually been to just pack a book bag and just go all over the world and see the land. You know, and I was hearing so many people tell me like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do after school. And I remember thinking, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's that's probably, one, I don't have any money to do that. Two, like, that's probably not going to happen. Um, and so I said, you know what? I can still travel maybe at a later date. Let's, let's press pause and let's think about the other options. The next options were obviously I studied um, biology and other courses in undergrad. And I was really, wasn't really sure at the time how to make that transferable to like my first job out of school, especially given that I didn't want to be in that field anymore. Um, and so the next thing that came to mind, it's like, okay, so maybe I go get a master's. A master's in what? And this is literally, this is me talking to myself back then. Like, well, I think I, I think you get a master's and then after that, I think people will hire you. That's literally what I was thinking at like early 20s, you know? Yeah, so I started thinking about what program I should be a part of. Was it business? Should I go to law school? Should I go to social work school? And um, just started doing more research, trying to figure out what place made the most sense for me. And honestly, looking back, 
I wish I would have took more time to really read like each thing and really think about after this, what would actually come of it versus trying to get a master's in order to be able to go into certain rooms. Because I felt that if on your resume it said this, then jobs most likely, at least when they're screening, let's say like, oh, this person has a master's in whatever it is and maybe would still consider you for the job. Um, Because back then that was really my goal was to be able to make a good living salary. Um, So I ended up looking into New York because I was thinking, okay, I can come to New York, see if I want to do international work. Do I want to be at the United Nations? Or if not, there's so many other options for people in New York. Maybe I should just come back. Um, Even though I was born here, I wasn't raised here. So I had never really lived here. So I started applying to schools, um, applied to one school in Virginia. Then I applied to NYU um, in New York and I got accepted to their social work program. So I was really excited about that. The next thing, of course, just like undergrad was, so how are we going to pay for this? <laughs> so, and in undergrad, we were, you know, my family, we're pretty like good with figuring out ways to just like crowdfund. So whether that's selling food, thinking about what other items I have that I don't even need that I can put up on Poshmark, like that's what I was doing to figure it out. Um, and luckily through undergrad, I had worked a couple of gigs. So I had money saved for when I was ready to do the next thing. Um, and so I ended up getting into the program, decided, okay. I'm going to pack up, move to New York, went there, got here, started at NYU, didn't really like the program. Like just, they were very rigid in what they wanted you to focus on. And because I have so many interests, I wanted something that was more, like just more options to be able to pick and choose and create a menu of what my breadth of work would be versus a very tailored and narrow approach. Um, And the program's only two years. And I remember going into my counselor's office and saying, yeah, I'm about to transfer schools. So I want to transfer. And they're like, why would you transfer? You you only have one more year. This is a grad program. It's like, yeah, but I asked you all, like, I want to be at these type of places for internships. And the school's response was, no, we can't get you that internship because we don't have connections there. I'm like, why am I paying you all this money if you can you not make these connections? Um, and so after hearing no a couple of times after trying to advocate for myself, I was like, nah, I'm, I'm good on this. I'm just going to see like what other places are out there. I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible so I wouldn't have to start over, but a place that would be more open to a variety of different things that I could do to actually build out what my degree would be. And so I ended up transferring to Columbia. And so I got into the Columbia program pretty seamlessly. And at Columbia, they let you take minors and all different classes. And so I started taking um, African studies, uh, the criminal legal system, uh, just any class I could think of that I wanted to take was pretty much at my fingertips at Columbia. And so I really enjoyed that school. Um, and then I also, that put me in a good place of being closer to, to where I was living at at the time um, in New York. And so, yeah, that, that master's idea really, it, if I, I would be lying if I told you it came from a thought of, yes, I know exactly what's going to happen from this. I had no idea. I was just like, yeah, this is what I do to get, to get like myself and elevate out of like, making sure I'm financially stable and I, I can be where I want to be. And that's what that's what I did. And I figured these schools were going to be something that jobs would look at. And back then I was really like stuck on that concept of, um, I guess more, those are obviously, Columbia is an Ivy League school. So knowing that that stands out sadly in the job market differently than some other universities might. So I had to make decisions like that um, at the time in order to try to position myself for where I wanted to be at least by 24. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you you brought this up because we've had diversity and inclusion 
conversations on the show as of late because of just everything that's going on in the world. I'm having those conversations professionally um, with colleagues in my own career, et cetera. And the system um, is rigged in a way, right? For us, especially in that, you know, I I work as a tech lawyer, so I'm having all these conversations about like the industry itself and how most of the companies have the same, you know, abysmal statistics, right? In terms of like their diverse employees. Um, and they're all making all these statements and donating money because of what's happening in the world. But when you look at their numbers, you know, their leadership is white and majority male. Uh, and the the numbers as you get farther down the total told is not much better. So one of the things that they often say is like, well, this is the industry, right? This is what the industry is. The resumes that we get, the places that we recruit candidates, the diverse candidates are not there. And it's like, well, yeah, right? If, if you're recruiting from the same schools and the same organizations and those organizations only have a small percentage of diverse candidates, then the problem is going to persist. And then, you know, on the other side of that, having these conversations with yourself to say, okay, if I want opportunities and I want my resume to be picked out, I have to go to this school here. And and I've made the same choices. So I get it. But I'm also always advocating to say, like, I know people who went to schools that you've never heard of who are brilliant, like, but we're not recruiting from there. We're not creating those relationships. And the colleges are at, you know, fault too, because they have their relationships where they feed. And it's like, if you want anything outside of that box, like what you mentioned about NYU, it's really impossible in a lot of sense. And, and it's, I think it's a, it's a, a challenge that doesn't apply equally across the board because there's the nepotism that happens where all of those things of trying to stand out, it doesn't matter if you have the connections and the uncle or the dad who's in a field already. And I, and I think we need to have more honest conversations about how this system is set up and what we have to do and the debt we have to take on or the scholarships we have to find to get the credentials to even get a foot in the door. Right. No, had I known, honestly, it's, even when young, younger people reach out to me now and I'm I'm still shocked because I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out and I haven't left my 20s. But, you know, if you want to call, great. Um, and I'm always open to talking to um, younger people. And one of the main questions is always, should I do this to get this? And I remember thinking that like, oh, this equals this, but it doesn't. Because even with all those, you know, certificates, degrees, you still may not land that job or that thing that you want. Um, and I, I think learning that makes you just makes me think about what kind of conversations people maybe can have, you know, in the schools or with their children or to just really talk about what does full fulfillment look like for you? Not that you shouldn't still strive. Um, I think for a lot of, especially for Black people, just depending on your socioeconomic background, school is like a way out and trying to figure out how do I continue to elevate myself. But sadly, I feel like you miss out on a lot of things because you buy into that same rhetoric of this system that was not created to work for us, quite frankly. And so how do you, now that I'm in, you know, a little bit older and in a different position, I'm like, how do we continue to pass on a message of basically how do you get around the system? So how do you make the system work for you while not selling out on your like dreams and values and things that you actually want? I think that's the conversation that should be had versus, you know, what school should I go to that actually nobody really cares because this person has a family member and they didn't even get a master's and they're you know, in the C-suite, just hanging out. So, yeah. I see it all all the time. And then, you know, you have this, I've had this internal dialogue where like, I get, I've gotten the foot in, my foot in the door in some environment. And I'm like, excited that it's happening, but also like doing that imposter syndrome thing where it's like, oh wait, do I actually have what it takes? Now that I'm here and I got it, you know, can I 
cut it. And then I meet these folks who strolled in, you know, through some other connections. I'm like, you're extra basic. Like, <laughs> and yet here we both are, right? Uh, but, it's, you know, I joke about that, but it's very sobering. Like what, mm-hmm. you know, we have to do to get in those environments. And I agree with you because I get those calls from people who are thinking about law school all the time, or they're in law school and trying to figure out, you know, what do I do next? I want to go to the large firm. And I'm always like, here's the things you need to be considering. Like if you go to a, a law school that is not offering diversity scholarships, like or, or doing what it takes to, to bring in diverse candidates, one of the top schools, you're going to take on six figures worth of debt. And that is going to limit, unless you just want to be saddled with it forever, that's going to limit your choices professionally. So now you're locked into mm-hmm. a certain path if you want to be able to pay that off. And I can have that conversation 15 times. And out of 15, 14 people are not going to listen to me, right? Like, they're just like, okay, yeah, yeah. But I'm just going to go to the top school and I'll figure the rest out later. And then they end up at some white shoe firm where they're one of a handful of black lawyers and they hate it. But now they're locked in because they owe a quarter of a million dollars. Right. So um, it's a vicious cycle. And I agree with you that we need to start thinking more creatively um, about, you know, how we we create opportunities for ourselves. And, and I think that conversation is happening more now as the culture mm-hmm. shifts. Um, and the, the things that are on like at the top of the list in terms of discussion and hot topics right now. So I'm excited about that, but we have a lot of work to do. Um, and I don't blame people for feeling like I need to go to Columbia. I need to get this degree. I don't even know what I'm going to do with it yet because I understand where that mentality comes from. And when somebody sees a Shaquine Brown on a resume with Columbia, let's just be real. There's a, there's an implicit bias that happens, right? But when mm-hmm. they see Columbia, it's like, oh, wait, but she's one of those, right? That has, has gone to the top schools. And um, I'm, I'm interested to see where we are in this conversation in the next few years. But as of today, you know, there is a lot of work that needs, that needs to happen. Um, but back to your story. So you go in, right? You have the NYU experience, you go to Columbia, still sort of trying to sort out what the next phase looks like for you professionally. When did that kind of crystallize? You're like, okay, this is what I actually want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really think through the internship. So part of the program, you have to go to, you have to do a, a year full of internship. And I because I wanted to have more options, I decided to do the year internship plus a summer internship. Now, that was a little bit tricky being in New York, and I still had to work. They don't pay you for the internship, so it's actually free. Um, so at the first place I went to was called the Center for Core Innovations, um, and that was in Jamaica, Queens. And so I started there as my first location um, when I was at NYU, and I was working with youth um, in an alternative to incarceration program. And at the time, you know, I had heard about their work, but I wasn't very familiar with alternative to incarceration programming and what that actually meant. And I was doing one-on-ones with youth. And I I really, while I enjoyed working with young people, I realized it was, I didn't really like the day-to-day interacting on a one-on-one level um, constantly and kind of having that sort of client relationship. And so I started thinking about, okay, well, this was a great experience. I have this under my belt and CCI is a really big non-for-profit. And so you still have an opportunity to learn about like policy background and other levels outside of just interacting with people that are in the communities. Um, And so from there, that summer, I got an internship with Congresswoman Clark um, in Brooklyn. And I, you know, I like no surprise during the story. I was like, you know, let's, let's see what, let's see what the politicians are doing. Let's see if, you know, if there's any, are they making impact? Just like trying to see, you know, what's going on. Um, and, and that experience was interesting. I think it was a little bit tricky because it was a summer internship. And so with a lot of summer internships, sometimes there aren't a lot of 
um, I guess, deep thought maybe for, for lack of better words of what you'll actually be doing. And so I think I got as much as I could out of it, but it was really hard to really ground myself to say, okay, I really like this. Maybe this is the path, but I got to meet so many great elected officials across Brooklyn and in just other areas um, of the city. And so that was a really good experience. Um, and because of that experience, that actually led me to my second year, which was my final year in grad school when I was at Columbia. They made a pitch for me to be in the public advocate's office. And at the time, uh, Tish James was there and they hadn't actually ever had a student from our school. But Columbia was very much, or at least my counselor, and she's like, well, tell me what you can bring to it and I will advocate for it. And I will work to try to see if I can build that. That was music to my ears. So I'm like, great, someone who will actually try. Um, and she gave it a shot and I was in the policy department. And so we covered issues, anything from housing to uh, to childcare, to criminal justice. It was an array of issues. And so that was a really good experience because I got to see different parts of how the public advocate, which is a very unique position for New York City, like that's not something that, you know, other states really have. Um, and really to see what's the kind of work that they do, how do they pull out, push out policy reports and data. And while I really enjoyed that experience, I had an amazing supervisor, great staff, Again, met a lot of people. Um, so a lot of community-based organizations would come to her office and you know advocate for their issues, and that gave even more exposure or experience to build connections. Um, so I really enjoyed that a lot. Getting closer to graduating, you know, even though you intern, that doesn't guarantee you a spot. And I started just thinking about, okay, what are ways that I can continue to leverage this moment to go to different events as a staff member, even though I'm an intern. And so I actually ended up going to. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the 40 under 40s. They do the awards for people in the city. Yeah. And so I convinced the other intern who didn't actually want to go that we should go. And he's like, well, we're interns. So we're going to take our business cards. We're going to go and we're going to hand them out. And we're going to like introduce ourselves to people. Um, and so we get to the, that year they hosted it at uh, Jay-Z's 40, 40 Club. And so we went to it. And that's actually where I met my first mentor, Henry. He was there. He was great. Worked for the city. Um, and he immediately just started introducing me to other people. It's like, well, what kind of job do you want to do? What kind of work? And again, at the time, I was really thinking, okay, I know that I'm the type of person that likes to change what I see currently in the present so we can have a better future. And I think that lives in a lot of different ways. Um, but here's my breadth of experience so far based on my internships, which was very focused on government and alternatives to incarceration type of programming. Um, and then also working with youth that I had done a little bit in Harlem with the police athletic league. So he said, okay, I'll, you know, just send me your resume. I'll try to shop it around. And so he started doing that. And I heard about a position for a reentry coordinator um, at the Manhattan DA's office. And it, it was interesting because I was actually just about to decide to just leave New York because I was, I couldn't say if I wasn't going to land a job. I mean, I could have, I guess I could have worked at, I was working at Eminem's world at the time. But that was an overnight shift. I won't really try to stay and do that. <laughs> so, like, I didn't go get my master's day. Um, And so, you know, I was like, okay, well, if I don't hear something soon. You know, my lease is ending soon. I have roommates. I have to do something. And so I, I see this position. There were two positions, this position and then with the police athletic league. But for youth programming, I learned very fast that they don't pay anything. Like, they just, sadly, they just don't really invest a lot of dollars. And I couldn't make that decision, um, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, being boxed in, there was no way I could afford to take something that would be, you know, limited benefits and not a lot of money coming in. And so I applied for this reentry coordinator position thinking, well, I could just use my experience from CCI and other spaces and um, interviewed, 
got the job. So that was my first official salary job. So I was really excited. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to do this. And, you know, just sticking to my, sticking to my roots, I get there. And I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is not going to work. Um, mainly because, you know, I had great colleagues. I met some of my friends there. Like it was a good time, but what they stood for, it was so, like, I knew that before I got there, but it really sunk in when I got, like, it was like, oh, you know, you would see people and like on the elevator with handcuffs and, and, and um, cuffs on their ankles, like total body situations. And just hearing those chains come down the hallway, it was not something that was, um, you know, something that, that you could really stomach every day, at least for me. And, you know, another thing too, is it was very, I knew what I was going to do every day. So when I came in, it was the same thing every single day, because I think because it was a city job, I don't know if all jobs are like that, but my first experience in city government, it was so just stagnant and I'm not a stagnant person. Like I just love, you know, vibrant environments and things like that. And so I was only there for, I want to say a year, like I had just touched a year and I was really trying to hold on to that. So like, all right. I got my mom in my ears, like she queen. She's not like the old fashioned, you stay there forever. But she was like, okay, at least try to finish a year. Like, where, where are you going? You don't even have, don't have any work experience, you know? Um, and so I stuck it out. And as soon as that year hit, I started looking. I was on Indeed trying to figure out, all right, where where else can I go? Um, and at the time, I saw a posting for the Vera Institute, which is a research and policy institute. And the only thing I knew about Vera was that they used to put out a lot of reports. Uh, I'm not really big on writing. And so I had thought, honestly, they probably won't accept this application. Um, and I was applying to an array of jobs. But again, I was trying to stick with at least the easiest transition would be things that I have skill sets in. But I think where my heart was at, now thinking back, I didn't really take that leap to apply to other industries or sectors. I didn't even think about it because, again, the stability piece, I was like, oh, this this will make sense. I'll probably get, you know, chosen. And I, so I put in the application and I did end up getting the offer. And so I started on this journey of actually understanding what transform, transformative justice looks like. What do, you know, what do other, how do other people think about not only alternatives to incarceration, but just like systemic change and started on the journey of consulting, which I realized I had skill sets that I didn't even know about, like training and enjoying talking to people. And we, um, we get to travel a lot. And so that was something I really enjoyed. So just to back all the way up, um, let me just say working overnight while in school, you are definitely first generation, definitely Jamaican, definitely Central American roots. Let me just say that. I'm saying that somebody who has Jamaican roots, wild Jamaican, okay? <laughs> That's number one. Just wanted to get that out of the way, right? You know when they tell you in grad school, like, you're not supposed to be working? Like, we just do it. That's that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to your work as a reentry coordinator, um, I always tell people, like, when people hear about reentry work, they're like, that's so amazing. And, you know, people think it's just the most respectable thing, which it is, right? With somebody who has stepped into that, I stepped into that lane for about a year. I was really committed, even just from a, like, volunteer perspective and then some other opportunities opened the door. I, it was the hardest year of my life. Like, let me just say that, right? For a number of reasons. One, because of what you said, and I wasn't even doing it, you know, on the state levels, on the nonprofit level. We were interacting a lot with the city and all these other um, offices that there are a lot of people who really don't want change. They, they are all about the status quo. And we are talking about those city jobs. There are a lot of people who've been there forever. They go in when they, you know, need to be there. They leave at four. Like, they're not trying to transform anything. Um, so that was really hard for me. Also, there's a lot of people 
who are involved in reentry because it's the hot thing to do, right? And they have some sort of savior complex where they want the praise for working in this space. And I found that very difficult. And then just with working with the population of formerly incarcerated, realizing how the system is not really set up for the majority of them to succeed, and also how the ancillary services are often not available to them. There are all these other things that they, they need to be set up for success. And I found the whole thing to be incredibly just disillusioning. Like I just was like, okay, you know, this is this is a lot. Um, so I understand. Said all that to say, like I understand uh, <laughs> the struggle that you had in in that environment. Um, but moving to Vera, so tell me more about the work that you do today. If you can go into a little more detail about that. Yeah. Um. So I actually started working on a program that works with um youth that are inside facilities and, and rethinking how to retrain staff and teach them more about young adults and. Um, how, while we know that they shouldn't be in that system for the time being, how can we actually use that space to act, to inform them and educate them and help them in a way that reentry, um, quote unquote, afterwards probably won't do. Um, and so I spent a lot of time training staff all over the country on just what youth development is and, and youth justice. And so that was my main work. And then I ended up switching over to another project um, that works with prosecutors across the country that have ran on a reform platform. Um, and, you know, I, so I will say that probably for this conversation, I will keep it very high level because working there, you know, there's just a lot of rules about like what you know can and can't say. Um, and so I guess I would just probably focus on more where being there has really taught me a lot more about what it, what it means to think about equity and to what, what does that look like? Not only in the workplace, but also in the things that you're doing. And for that reason, I still struggle with even the ways in which, um, whether it's government, nonprofit, or just just the way people think about what it means to actually help or uplift or build and empower communities of color, especially Black communities. And so for that reason, I I know for a fact that in the near future, like the what that looks like for me will probably be very different. And so I've been trying to focus on my why a lot? Like, why do I do the things that I do? And why do I care about what I care about? And how can I still continue to do my first goal, which is honestly, I need to make sure that I start investing in generational wealth of some sort while also making impacts. And so I, you know, am really thinking about what, what are other ways and what are the skill sets that I have from these two experiences while short and, and limited, I've still gotten a lot out of it. And how can I transform that into and package it into spaces where I actually want to be or like have something else that I know that I'm putting energy there um, and building my own. I've been doing a lot of, you know, research around entrepreneurship and just what that looks like. And also, again, seeing what is the exact thing and what do I like and how can I how can I create a mixture? Because with jobs, it's so limiting. It's, it's just like you do this one thing. And if you're good at it, you get stuck in that role for quite some time versus being able to know that I have this skill set in this and this skill set in, in that and how and how can I merge it? So going back to earlier, how I mentioned about um, the creative aspect, I really do miss being in those kind of environments. It's and I've noticed that that as I'm getting older, it's more, I, I urge more and more to be around that. Like I just that's what I want to do. Um, but I really am passionate about these these issues, especially right now. That is the hot topic. Everyone wants to talk about. Um, criminal justice reform or taking down the entire system or figuring out do they want to be, you know, an activist. And I've enjoyed talking to my family and my different support circles about what that looks like for me day to day and what that is from a nine to five and what that is from five to 12. Like, you know, and just 
What do those things look like? This happens often in that, you know, which is, I think, difficult for many of us who work in professional environments as well, in that um, we're involved in many things, but we feel stymied or stifled in terms of what we can actually <laughs> discuss. And, you know, how do we, how can we be ourselves, right? So it often feels like you're on dual tracks in that I have all these creative ideas. I'm passionate about many different things, um, but also I need to secure my financial future. Um, and how can I be myself and, and do both? And I find that that is an internal conflict um, that, that many of us have, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. in a perfect world, like how, how do you think you merge your, the creative side of who you are, right? Um, with that professional stable side? If, if the world was your oyster, what would that look like? Mm, I like this question. Um, hmm. If the world was my oyster, what would that look like? I think I would definitely, one, I would be able to work with probably um, all over the country, all over in different countries too, internationally. And that would, I would be able to still be financially stable by doing that. I really enjoy like teaching, mentoring, coaching. And so I would do a little bit of that. That would sprinkle in some some arts, and so I would also make time to be able to um, really commit to maybe still performing. I, I miss being on stage, um, and so if I was able to still audition and be a part of shows that had meaning and values that were connected to uplifting the Black community, because I've spent so much time self teaching and really doing a lot of reading about what that means, how do I identify? I would want to be in a space where we were using that platform to actually put push messages out. And I know that there are spaces like that, but again, it just depends. I mean, if you know the right connections, I mean, who knows? I guess you you can get there, but it is a very tailored, very specific space, I think, merging the two between arts and impact and and, um, community uplifting. So that in an ideal world, that's probably where I would be. Um, And, you know, like what you said about the professional thing, there's a, a lot of work. And because of communications and how you speak about it, oftentimes, it's limited to uh, the people who lead the projects. And so that's why I think, you know, even with all the, the knowledge and the things that I've learned, I know that there are things I have to just extract from the actual project. So that way I can speak about it from my perspective as Shaqueen and not necessarily as the speaker of the work. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I don't know if you followed um, this case since you've worked with youth and have passion there. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about the young lady who is in a juvenile detention facility for not doing her online homework. And, you know, there is all this talk about this one case, but I'm sure if you've worked in this space, you know, there are thousands of, of kids who are um, incarcerated right there. They're in these facilities, not getting the, the support that they need. They're not being any type of like behavioral programs and stuff. It's just not happening in the way that it needs to. So, you know, I think, Obviously, it's great that there is outrage over this one case, but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that uh, this is a systemic problem. Do you think that we'll see um, change at a structural level, particularly with regard to youth and, and that that pipe prison, you know, school to prison pipeline? Do you think we'll see systemic change in our lifetime for the better? I think we might see some version of it, honestly. I think right now... You know, while it is one case and there are so many, I think this is a good moment for community teaching. So often a lot of people that work in in this field or whether they work with youth or they do criminal justice reform or whatever, it's not there's not always a dialogue between that world and the world of like people who are doing other things. And I feel like it's it's a lot stronger and social media has really shown that, I think, as a tool 
when you are able to curate accurate, here are the ways you can, you know, advocate or here's the books that you should read and here's more exposure. And I think as we continue to do that and we get more voices, I do think that something will happen. I don't know if it would be full scale systemic change of like what I imagine of where we have a totally different, we're not even relying on the courts and setting things up in that way. I think that probably will happen maybe after my lifetime. But I am encouraged by a lot of the people, um, whether in, in my own generation or the people behind us, like they are just ready to go, not only protesting, but really soaking up a lot that I think each generation will continue to learn more and more and we will start to move the needle a bit. Yeah, I mean, I do, and I, I've said this on the show in recent weeks, because I will admit, like when the protests really popped off again and um, you know people were taking to the streets, I was asking myself, like, what makes this different, right? Like, what is transformative this time that wasn't last year or two years ago or 2014? Um, but what I have seen is that people are standing up and, and taking notice, right? And I think that some of the largest organizations in the world are saying, okay, this is something that we have to focus on. Now, whatever their motives are, <laughs> who knows? I'm not saying everybody's motives are in the right place, but now in the digital age that we are in, when you make the wrong choice, right? That that is popularized and that information is going to disseminate as quickly as the right choice. So it put, mm-hmm. puts pressure on people to want to be on the right side of history um, as well. So I think we'll see consistent progress in a way. I'm interested to see where the election lands because mm-hmm. that, not that I'm super excited either way at this juncture. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's something to be said for the things that are happening at the state level, not just the federal level as well. Um, and also a national focus on the prosecutors at both federal and state level. That is, I think we're moving in a direction where we will see impact for sure. I just, um, I don't know that we will see transformative change uh, in the next four years or the next 10 years. It, 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 we didn't get here overnight and it's not you know, it's not going to be resolved overnight as well. But I think to your earlier point, the more many of us who are, are really high achievers and planners and are trying to figure out how to marry our passions um, with stability, the more we tap into those gifts, the more we help to move the needle forward in mm-hmm. what might be a, non- a non-conventional way. Because let's be clear, there's only so much we can do in these large organizations, right? And they will train you, they'll give you knowledge, they will utilize you for your gifts, right? And all the work you put in, you may not be the person that who's out in the forefront. Like, let's just be real, right? Let's just, yeah. even later later in the career. So I think the, the more we all tap into our gifts and our talents and figure out how to use those for good, um, the better. I'm not saying it's fair that that has to happen. Like you've got to figure out how to, you know, how to navigate and do basically two jobs, your day job, and then figuring out the other thing, like you said, from five to midnight. But I think, you know, it is it is par for the course, um, for sure. But shifting gears a little bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. The first thing that comes to mind is probably moving back to New York, honestly, because I came here with the money that was in my savings account, no job yet. And I didn't even have an apartment. So that was definitely um, where I needed to be extraordinary. I came with my mom and we were just, you know, how New York life is with the just never know if it's a real apartment or it's not. We really we learned that just from going um, across the boroughs. And I remember her being like, are you sure you'll be okay? Like, you don't even have a, you don't have a job yet. It's like, it's fine. Let's go. We're going to print out these resumes. And I, we both went to 42nd Street and I was just walking around. No one even uses paper resumes anymore. But I just thought like, you know, let me give that a try. Um, and it ended up 
landing a job actually the second day I had actually came up here and everything still fell into place. So I really think back to that. It's been, what, six years now, almost six years that I've been up here. And I really think that probably is the time where I really had to take a deep breath and really just step out and try. And I hope to like continue doing that in other areas of my life. Yeah, I will say this about New York. I have a love-hate relationship with New York. <laughs> you know, I've been in this area now for back for 11 years and it's hard, right? The city is, um, everything is at your fingertips, but it's almost like you're almost overly, like sensory overload. Like there's just too much mm-hmm. happening. Um, and there's a grind that is, is really hard to, to cut off. What I will say though is New York is very cutthroat. Um, and on the one hand, it can feel hyper competitive and like you're so close to so much opportunity yet so far. But on the other side of it, the beauty of New York is that you can go to one event and meet somebody that changes everything or run into one opportunity out of nowhere that really mm-hmm. sets you on the next chapter of, of your life. So, And that's an experience you may not have as many times, right? In some small town USA. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it for that, being able to come with, like, I don't know what my plan is and a plan will materialize um, if you're willing to literally, you know, beat the pavement. But um, tell me, whose story do you draw inspiration from? Hmm. I would have to say probably a mixture of my mom, Michelle Obama, once I learned um, her actual story. I'm really moved by people who see opportunities, even if you, if everybody else can't see it. And that's really where I like draw my inspiration from and just thinking about how do you keep going, but also pausing. I think COVID has really done that and paying attention to how do you check back in with yourself so you, you can still give and push, but also like take a breath, take a vacation. Um, and probably my best friend, she's super good with that. She has most of the time her stress levels are very low um, because she's on a beach and she's a beach goer. And so I really um, I try to take from that too. like, all right, you know what? This is stressful. How do I just think about something else? And that's still OK. And I can come back to this other thing, you know, so I'm really inspired by just being able to be a go getter still stay true to yourself and taking like rest because rest is something that we definitely don't talk about um, in school and definitely not being first generation that it's not always highlighted. So now we're about that work. We're about like, yes. you know, just, just <laughs> making it happen. But, you know, you, you can never be your best self. if You never take the time mm-hmm. to rest and recharge. And it's something that like, as much as we talk about on the show, like, the extraordinary on an ordinary day. Like one of the things that we've been trying to convey, particularly during COVID and all this political unrest too, right? We're just on a 24 seven news cycle um, with some pretty heavy information at all times is that sometimes being extraordinary means taking a pause, right? And fasting from the media or just saying, I need a break today. I need a self-care day, especially because many of us are still not going anywhere, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's almost like counterintuitive, but you're home and you're actually working harder. I know a lot of people are working more because it's just like, yep. I'm just going to the next room to do my work. I don't, I don't leave it anywhere when I clock out. Um, mm-hmm. So part of being extraordinary is knowing, okay, I need to take a step back and know that like things may take a little bit longer, but it's almost like a go slow to go fast. If I can take a, take a minute and sort of gather my bearings um, and then go full steam ahead after I recharge, I actually will probably cover more um, ground. And I was actually just listening to uh, Michelle Obama's new podcast. I don't know if you've heard, mm-hmm. you know, the first episode, but I was listening to that. And she was talking about this, of coming out of the White House in those eight years and how she took that first year just, just to sort of like figure out where she was and, you know, reconnect with people and reconnect with friends. And I think 
we're in such an achiever culture, like especially when you're talking about New York, if you're here, it's like, you know, team no sleep, like all of this stuff, like, okay, I get it. That is great. But I, and it took me a while to get here and I have not perfected it. But now I realize like for my own sanity and my own mental health, like I, it's okay if I put certain things on the back burner and say, I need a moment uh, to myself. Everybody does it. The leader of the free world has done it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's, it's something that we have to have to make sure that we're in a good place, you know, in terms of our emotional and mental and psychological health as well, considering all the stress that is unusual that we're, we're under now, um, in terms of just like COVID and, and all the stuff that's happening at once. But I will ask you as an older sibling, um, do you feel, you know, pressure to set this example and sort of chart the course that your siblings can follow? Yeah, d- definitely. I think Probably I felt it more so when I was younger because my siblings were a little bit, were pretty spread out. Um, and I used to just think, okay, they're watching. Let me let me make sure that I'm setting these path, you know, this path forward. But as they've grown and a lot of them have taken their own sort of journeys, I just realized that is a, a load I probably put on myself just because, because they are, we're vastly different. Most mm-hmm. of us. Um, and so I actually think that's really beautiful and, and find that older siblings tend to have certain this characteristics about themselves that I'm, I'm learning more and more how that actually translates into other areas of my life, whether it's my friend groups, partners, whatever it is, um, being older, you definitely, usually, at least for me, I have to be very clear focused and knowing that it's not just about me, but I'm thinking about the people behind me as well, you know? So. But what I think is great about your story is getting on a path and being able to say like, uh, actually this is not for me. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go in another direction, which people have a hard time with that, especially those who have that those oldest siblings or older siblings temperaments. Right. Because it's just like, no, I'm on it. I've got to complete it. I don't want to course correct. This could cost me money. It could cost me time. So I commend you for being able to make that choice. Um, glean what you can from the experience, but making the choice to move on and do what's best for you and in, in, in charting a new chapter. Uh, when something doesn't feel right. And I think we need freedom in the space more as Black folks to be able to do that, right? And 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 when you're the first, like you're the first to go to college, the first, often there's this pressure to like do it right the first time when that's just not real life, right? Like we're, we're going to stumble and something's going to seem right today that may have been right for the season, but it, it may not be right, you know, for the, the next season of, of your life. So um, kudos to you for figuring that out um, really early on in, in your academic and professional journey. Um, but if we're talking about the immediate next chapter, what's on the horizon for Shaquille? The immediate next chapter, um, definitely more of this relaxing stuff. So I've really enjoyed this. Um, I know with COVID right now, I really put a hinder in travel, but I'm hoping that at some point we'll be able to travel again. I think for me, it's really focusing on some of the things that don't necessarily relate to my financial gain, because then I, I'm stronger in that area of focus after the fact. Mm-hmm. So. I think for me, it'll be doing a lot more of that, being more with family and friends. Um, and then also thinking about my next move not being a next move that is necessarily tied to all of these other past things, but really thinking about where will I actually be my closest to my true self um, and being able to, again, merge like all these different interests that I have. And so I'm going to continue to work on my own side projects of actually building something out that I can create with my vision. Um, and then still, you know, align myself possibly in, in other industries to really think about how can I contribute the skill sets that I have on a wider scale. And so that's what I'm really hoping to do. 
it will always, always, always be black, black, black. So I know for a fact that no matter what it is, if from my nine to five, I can't do that. Like definitely from the other hours, I will always focus on uplifting. So absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm excited to see just on that point, I'm excited to see that, um, that's not seen as a hindrance as much as I, like when we started the show, you know, people were saying to me, Oh, the show's awesome. But if you want to grow, you got to get some white people on. Like, you know, like that's the only way you're going to really reach success. And I'm like, um, do you know who we are? Like <laughs> consumers and that's consumer right. of media of content of th- like, that doesn't even make sense. Right. So, um, it all, it all, it felt like an other before when you were, uh, Black, focused on the Black community and our uplift in any way, right? It's always, it always felt like the subcategory. We're now starting to feel, um, starting to, keyword, uh, more mainstream, right? No, it, it's not like a little pet project anymore. Like people realize this is legitimate and, you know, it's substantive and it's activism in its own way. Um, but it is garnering, I think, more respect and attention uh, on, a, on a, a larger scale. So I feel you there for sure. Um, so where can people find you online? Um, I have some Instagram. It's uh, Queen's Logic, Q-U-E-N dot Logic. That's my Instagram handle. And then I also have LinkedIn, Shaquen Brown. So if you just look it up, they can find me there. I'm always open to more conversations. And I love, you know, learning from other people in other fields. So. I, absolutely. I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm actually interested to see how you marry all the many different experiences. <laughs> <laughs> you have and uh, uh, and you're also your passions into your own uh, initiatives as well. So thanks for joining us on this Sunday. No, thanks for having me. Definitely, we'll keep you posted. Awesome. Uh, to our listeners, you know what to do. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Tell somebody about it. If you're trying to figure out your next chapter uh, and have interest in the, the paths that Queen has been on, please feel free to reach out to her. Who are we without our community and being able to share information? We have to start forming our own brain trust uh, and passing on what we've learned uh, to those who need it. So reach out to her if you need to, if you'd like to get more information. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.